Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. I wish I would have questioned things a little bit sooner. And obviously, I'm talking mostly from financial literacy, but I just think there's a lot out there. And I think you should question it. Make sure you truly understand it. There's a lot of things in life you don't want to outsource. And if you question those things, you don't have to outsource it. Best ever listeners, welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Slocum Reed, and I'm here with Logan Rankin. Logan is joining us from Green Bay, Wisconsin. He's the owner and founder of Rankin Enterprises and Focus Property Management. He is personally the owner of almost 2,000 units with an AUM of over $200 million. Logan, can you start us off with a little more about your background and what you're currently focused on? Yeah, that sounds good. Thanks for having me on. For me, I grew up in a small town in northern Wisconsin, not too much further northeastern from Green Bay. Blue collar, hardworking city, and just didn't learn a lot about financial literacy. Went through school, graduated college, still didn't learn a lot about financial literacy, right? Learned how to work hard, but had that scarcity mindset. Started my career like a lot of people, started working in a corporate job, Fortune 50 company, leading retail operations. And as I started to do pretty well and start to promote and make a little bit more money, I realized that just like back in a small town in Wisconsin is I was working really hard, but my money just wasn't working hard for me. I was doing things like getting rid of all my debt. I graduated $40,000 in debt, putting money into a 401k, but I'm working so hard and I could just feel my money not working hard for me. And luckily I started reading some books. You read enough books, you try enough different financial things, you run into real estate. So I convinced my wife in 2013 to buy our first investment property. It was a single family house, left us with $7 left in our bank account. <laughs> I remember oh. underwriting it, told my wife, like this, the book says I underwrite it like this and it should produce $3,400 after a year. And I'm like, if it does, we'll just take a vacation. I mean, it's worth it. And we, so a little bit of a risk there, leaving $7 in the bank, but it actually cash flowed after a year, 3,300. So that changed everything for me. That was a big moment, not the money, just the fact that I could underwrite a deal or accurately control, understand, and predict within $100 because I couldn't do that in my 401k and I couldn't do that right. in any other investment that I made. So the next year, my wife and I bought a duplex, so two units. So we doubled, went broke again. The year after that, we bought two duplexes, went broke again. Every dollar we had, we just kept putting into real estate. And that was about the time I started to realize that what was helping me make more money at my current leadership job with the Fortune 50 company, I was promoting, getting more responsibility. 
I started realizing that I'm pretty good at leadership and people. I love diving into and dissecting the financials or the P&L of the businesses. And I was obsessed with operations. Those three things translated really, really well to real estate. Digging into the operational efficiencies of an apartment, digging into the financials, trying to force NOI. And in 2019, at about 200 units, which was enough units to be able to, because it's not what you make, it's what you keep. So if I looked at what I was keeping, working 10 to 20 hours on my real estate, I was keeping the same amount as my W-2 job, working 70 hours a week, nights and weekends. So I retired in 2019. And the first thing I did, since I'm an operations guy, I started my own property management company and started with four people. Today, we have just over 73. I think 73, we just hired our last employee. And my portfolio, yeah, it's 1,923 units, just about 200 million. And I think what makes me unique, I've been able to scale and do that while keeping all the equity. So I don't have any partners, never done a syndication. So my wife and I still retain all the equity in those 1,923 units. You had 200 doors in 2019, which means you added over 1,700 in the last three years. Yes. And you're in ownership of all of those. That's correct. So Logan, that's incredibly impressive. I have a very blunt question here (laughs) that I can't think of any better way to put this. Where did the money come from to buy 1,700 units coming from a portfolio of 200 doors and leaving your job? Given that you were putting yourself in a position to retain all of the equity, how did you fund those deals? Yeah, I think the biggest thing that I learned is in 2018, 2019, all I was buying is multifamily. So I switched from only thing I could afford in the beginning was houses and duplex and four units. Once I started realizing that buying apartments is not buying properties, it's buying businesses. And then I applied what I learned because I'm in Wisconsin, right? There's small appreciation here, but I learned how to force appreciation. So what I did is I started buying these 1970s, 80s value-add deals owned by ma and pa owners that look at their property as a property. They probably manage it themselves. And there's a lot of opportunity to be able to force NOI. And then I built my property management as not just a management company, but a construction company as well. So with 2,000 units, 73 people is a lot. You don't need that many to be able to manage that many units. But we internally rehab the majority of our units. So I was able to figure out how to reposition. I got really good at repositioning properties. So for example, to ask how to fund deals, what I would do is I'd buy that deal and that was probably at a wholesale, most likely a wholesale price. I don't think I've bought a deal on market in three years. Then what I would do in the time that it would take somebody to reposition that property, let's call it four years, I do it in 12 months. After the 12 months, I refi that money out. I use all that refi money and put it back in. And with 200 units, I had a lot of opportunity when I retired from my job to be able to start putting money back into because those 200 units, I really didn't refi any of them. So at first I refied to give me a really nice pool of money to allow me to buy about 500 that next year. And then it just kept rolling. And this year in Q1, I'm having my best start to a year yet either. I closed on 500 units already this year. And all of it is through repositioning my properties and refining the money out and then buying another one and doing the exact same thing. For example, in-house, we probably turn 15 to 20 units a month, and we turn units in about 72 hours. So we'll go in there, we'll gut the unit, we'll put in LVP, we'll put in appliances, paint, et cetera, and then we'll obviously move the rent up. But what I've realized, at least in my market, is there's so many properties that still have the shade carpet and 
the weird paint colors, these 1970, 80, 90s that the owner just doesn't want to upgrade. And there's also brand new construction that's thousands of dollars more. So there's a big need for in the middle because people want to be proud of where they live. They want to have an experience that they can remember. So I really focus in that middle. So taking that 1970s looking property and making it look like a brand new build just wasn't built then. And I think there's that big opportunity there. And certainly that has allowed me to be able to scale NOI and reap the benefits of that. Absolutely. And taking renovation in-house, do you do third-party property management or is it just for your own portfolio? Just only for my employees and myself. And my employees, I do it from a standpoint of they get the same cost basis as I do, but only in-house. I constantly hear so many people worried about they find a deal, they close on a deal and they're trying to find money, which is important. But once the deal is closed, they don't know how to operate it or they don't operate as well as they should. And I had a third-party management when I was still working, right? So I know what that's like. And you can still obviously manage the manager. But I feel like there's a lot of people that are really poor at that. A lot of people that don't look at operations as detailed as they should because there's so many different levers you can push to be able to drive real value. That's awesome. And absolutely correct. That's one of the reasons why I am a self-manager as well. Portfolio significantly smaller than yours. But one of the reasons I've retained management is I have yet to find a third-party manager who would be able to do it as efficiently and as cost-effectively as I can. And I'm finally getting to the point now where it is more of a 10 to 20-hour-a-week deal than a 30 to 40. That's awesome. And you're exactly right. There's not enough good ones out there. That's a whole different topic. Are all of your properties in the Green Bay area? Yeah, they're across the Fox Valley. So primarily Green Bay, Appleton, Oshkosh, for those familiar with Wisconsin. So they're in about a 50-mile radius, but... I have some a few hundred miles away. They're all in Wisconsin for sure. And slowly I'll start to expand out of Wisconsin. But for right now, there's still plenty of opportunity. And if I can keep my apartments closer, obviously it helps with the economy of scale too. Absolutely. Reading into the numbers a bit, I'm in Cincinnati, Ohio, Logan. So Midwestern markets are familiar. One of the things reading into your numbers AUM of 200 million with just under 2,000 doors means average value per door of around 100,000. But also in my notes here, I have 185 buildings at 1,925 units, which means that your average property is around 11 doors or 1.2 million. Now, I know in Cincinnati, there are still opportunities to find those deals off market because of the size. Until you get into 20, 30, 40 unit properties, there are still mom and pops or or ma's and pa's, as you said, who are managing those properties and thinking of it like a property and not like a business. You said you never buy on market. That's 1,700 units of off-market deals in three years. How are you doing your lead generation? How are you putting yourself in front of these sellers? It's a good question. And I would tell you the reason the unit count two is so small is because my first 200 were a lot less than 11 units. But again, just hard to build a portfolio without doing syndications or partnerships in the beginning, but then it really gets going. And like, for example, this year of the 500 units I've closed on, the smallest deal was 48 units. Actually, the rest were a hundred or more, which is much easier now, bigger, the better, in fact. But from uh, how am I sourcing the deals? So I pay a really good finder's fees. So anybody that knows me knows that my finder's fee, I don't nickel and dime people. I'm going to pay 
based on cash on cash returns. So if you find a deal, I think they know to come to me. Secondly, I've closed on over a hundred deals. I've never got a deal under contract that I haven't closed. So I have a hundred percent track record. I think it goes a long ways when people are looking at deals, bringing them to me, because obviously they're not going to get paid unless it closes too. So I think that helps. I tell everybody and anybody. So I have police officers that have brought me deals. I have past guys that have brought me deals. Because just think about it, right? A police officer goes to a lot of properties that there's a lot of crime. And if I usually stick to 99% of the time, locations that are really, really strong, but I love properties that are mismanaged. And a lot of times when they're mismanaged, there's what? There's crime. Who fights that crime? Police officers. So the police officer is going to them and they know that I'm a willing buyer. There's a good chance that whoever owns that is tired. Same with pests, right? You know, if they're going to a place a lot to take care of a cockroach situation, bed bugs, whatever, that owner must be tired of owning it. So that's a great way. Calling like crazy, utilizing my resources and calling people and trying to make compelling offers for them to be able to sell. Recently this year, I hired somebody in my team to just do that. So he's just constantly helping me source leads, call people, introduce who I am and what I am as a buyer. So a lot of different things like that. But I think for somebody that has a smaller portfolio, like anybody that's listening that has from two to 10 to 20, I used to go and sit down with every single broker, real estate agent that would listen to me, right? I'd buy them coffee and I would try to Babe Ruth it. I'd try to call my shot. My goal this year is to buy 20 units. I would love it to be with you. If you give me a shot, I know we can make a lot of money together. And I would do that over and over and over again. Because when you're small, it's easy for me now because I have credibility. But when you're small, you don't have the credibility. So you got to kind of call your shot and then you got to follow through with it. And I think that helps a lot too. This year or the like the last year and a half, I've been doing some strategic things too, like waiving a financial contingency. Okay. Nothing shows strength of a buyer or helps move somebody. Cause if you're going to sell, you don't want to screw around, especially with COVID. The last thing you want to do is let a whole bunch of investors through your apartment. And then all of a sudden it doesn't close and you got to go through that shit again. So just trying to do different things like that or putting on more earnest money would be a few ideas. We'll get back to the show with the first some sponsors. I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about when it comes to scaling your real estate business is lack of capital holding you back. Raising private capital on demand can be a major challenge, but you can get the knowledge and tools you need to succeed when you attend Dana Cornell's four-week Raise Capital Masterclass Live. After starting out with no capital or relationships, Dana has raised over $1 billion twice in the past 20 years, and he has made it his mission to share the best of what he's learned with business owners and investors like you. You can learn more at danacornell.com forward slash best ever. Dana's Raise Capital Masterclass Live allows you to immediately unlock and raise capital on demand, drastically increasing your business's growth. If you're ready to take your business to the next level, go to danacornell.com forward slash best ever to enroll today. I'd like to introduce you to my good friends over at passiveinvesting.com, a private equity real estate firm based out of the Carolinas. Passiveinvesting.com makes it easy for you to start investing in real estate. They focus on acquiring institutional quality apartments and self-storage facilities with private accredited investor funds. They also have a real estate debt fund that offers hard money loans to local fix and flippers across the U.S., which currently has a 0% default rate. With a portfolio of over $700 million in assets and controlling over $250 million in equity, they know how to secure the best deals and how to avoid the red flags. If you are interested in learning more, please reach out directly to PassiveInvesting.com and request the free Passive Investing 
Investor Guide that outlines the seven red flags for passive apartment and self-storage investing. Visit PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags to download that PDF now. That's PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags. Waiving or not having a financing contingency and then letting your deposit go hard. Those are the two biggest factors financially, aren't they? Yeah, 100%. When I talk to the brokers in my sphere, and this is not everyone I take out for a coffee, but the people I already have a good relationship with, when I'm asking them about other investors, the first stats that they quote to me are, he's four for four with the deals he's gotten under contract and he never retrades or he's retraded X number of times for our listeners retrading in the commercial space is when during the due diligence period, the buyer does or attempts to renegotiate the contract during due diligence to bring down the price. That's called retrading. So tell us a little more about your finder's fee. I do my finder's fee usually based on either the amount of units, if it's like a straight up deal, maybe it'll be about somewhere between 150 to 250 a unit, or I'll do it based on cash on cash return. So if it's a strong cash on cash return, I'll give more. And if it's a lower cash on cash return, I'll give less. And that's kind of something we talk about whoever finds me the deal, I'll underwrite it. And I'll show them how I'm underwriting it and why it might be worth what it is or not worth what it is. I've given out at least a half dozen six-digit finder's fee. I know I paid that maintenance guy more than he made in two years on one finder's fee. I do that for, again, I think finding the deal, It's other than labor, because I would argue that labor is very important in this type of market too to do what I'm doing. Finding the deal is, is very tough. So I think that's really important to pay for the deal. Now, obviously, if the deal is not a great deal or it's just a lower deal, then we'll talk about that too. But the, the other thing I didn't share, a lot of the people that send me deals, one thing that I do that I think is almost call it more valuable than the fee is I'll actually let that person, if they want to get into real estate, follow me around an entire deal. Because all they did is give me the deal. I'm underwriting it, right? My attorney's putting together the offer to purchase. I'm doing the negotiating, even if it's a real estate agent, by the way. They don't have to do anything. Their license is not allowed. They don't have to do anything. But what I will allow them to do is watch and listen. I'll allow them to come to the inspection. I'll see what bank, how I financed it, what the negotiations look like. So I'll teach them, which from a guy that got into real estate only reading from books, didn't know anybody, that would be the most valuable thing there is if you want to scale your wealth in real estate is learning from somebody that's actually doing the deal so you can do it yourself. You talked about treating properties like a business and understanding operations and building a business plan. What would you say is the most important skill that you brought into real estate with you and that you developed as you've built your portfolio? Two come to mind right away. I'll say the first one that came to my mind is my ability to be able to assess the business. And obviously I'm talking about the apartment, assess the business really, really well and how it's currently being run and then strategize a lot of different ways to run that business better which would equal a lot higher NOI. I think I do things different on every phase of that process. Even my inspections, when I get a deal under contract inspection, most people do an inspection to inspect the property and see what's wrong with it. I do that, but that's like the 10th thing I'm doing during the inspection. It's like very low on my list. I very rarely ask for anything during inspections. And that's just another reputation thing. So what I do on an inspection is because you can only see so much on all the P&Ls, right? And then the rent rolls. On paper, you can only assess a business so far. 
after you've assessed that though, when you're on site, that's when you really get to look at things. So you get to look at the income side and the expense side. So for example, I walk every single unit. I just closed on 199 unit, for example, a few weeks ago. And as I was walking the units, I noticed that at least 30% of them had water leaks that were not taken care of. Now, here's a good example, right? You look at what the P&L said for how much he's paying in water, and it's probably 30% higher than what it should be, which is significant when it talks about cap rates, right? So I know I can reduce that by just simply fixing that issue. I can also figure out what are the other things as I'm walking that we could do with the rehab process. We walk a unit, we're measuring the vanity. We're measuring the cabinets. We're measuring the floor. We're getting all that right away so that when somebody puts in their 60-day notice to leave, we already have the plan because a big problem right now is materials. Well, I spend on average 550 to 650000 a month on CapEx because right now I'm repositioning 11 properties at the same time and I speed reposition so we go quick. But to have that materials, that's a big deal. But if you can put those materials in 50 days before the person even moves out, the likelihood of you having that is much higher. I'm constantly hearing that from a lot of people in real estate. Like, I can't get appliances. They're not coming for two more weeks. Well, they ordered them as soon as the tenant left. So that's two weeks of vacancy. That's why we're always pushing to rehab these units in 72 hours. Vacancy is real on repositions. And especially when you're doing them fast, because it creates a lot more. And I'm also looking at when I inspect that property. So back to the repositioning, what are their income sources, right? What else can I do? For example, this apartment I was talking about, they didn't allow pets. It's backed up to a park. There's like four acres of grass. If you rehab the units, and we usually put in luxury vinyl planks, you can harden the units while they look great. And I think for all the listeners, I think pets is a no-brainer. Pets is an absolute no-brainer. Yes to pets. Yes, yes to pets all day. Last year, I did more than pet stores do and just pet fees. You get a fee when they move in, you get a fee per month. If you really do it right, the amount of damage that happens is very, very minimal. Again, if you're upgrading the units right. If you had all carpets, I understand why people wouldn't want to put in pets. But I highly recommend that the way you can harden the unit also allows you to get a lot higher based on rent too. And we have a lot of processes too, like with our company when we do through the rehab process. Because I think rehab in general is a, a vast subject where a lot of people get emotional about it. Or they're like, well, how much do we spend on a rehab? So I built my management company so that our operation team just does it based on ROI, right? Everything in your business should be done based on return on investment. So for example, we have three kinds of turns. That's it. There's no kind of Menard specials (laughs) or Home Depot specials. We have this two types of flooring. That's it. We have one type of cabinet. And why there's three different versions is because there's a light turn, there's a medium turn, and there's a heavy turn. How do you know? It's based on ROI. A light turn is going to cost us $3,500. Our medium turn is going to cost us 5000 and our heavy turn could cost us between 10 to 20 depending on how nice of a property is, if we're going to throw in granite. So if it's a medium turn, it costs $5,000, and we assess we can get $150 more. Well, then we simply take 150 times 12, we get $1,800. We divide 1800 by the $5,000 rehab, and we got a 36% return on our investment. So if that 36% is better than a light turn and a heavy turn, then that's the turn that we do order the materials and we go after it. So all these little things I've learned from assessing P&Ls, from looking at businesses, from my W-2 job, I've brought over to real estate and I love operations. We're constantly just trying to figure out how to do things more efficiently, but also provide a better experience. What are the biggest mistakes you've made along the way? 
all lot. In the beginning, I probably financed every single property the first two years completely wrong. Put down way too much, amortization way too low. <laughs> so that was a pretty big mistake. I'll talk about this later in the show too, because I think you asked a question about one of the biggest mistakes or money you've lost. I got too overconfident once and I didn't buy a 28 unit apartment in a good location. That's one of my biggest rules now is you can control everything about operations. You can rebuild your entire building if you want, but you can't control what's around you. And I had to learn that lesson the hard way for what's around you. So I think those are a couple of the bigger mistakes. Talk about that a little bit more about not being able to control what's around you. I look at something similar with my own portfolio and the properties that I'm looking to acquire. How much control am I going to be able? And as as a real estate agent talking to clients about the fourplexes that they want to buy, is it a standalone? Is it on a cul-de-sac surrounded by single families? Or is it in a row of 20 of the same building? And how much are you going to be able to control the reputation of the property by the action that you take and the things that you do to your property? How is it that you gauge the importance of the surrounding area and go a couple layers deep here because we all have a general idea that you want to be in a better location. What is it specifically that you're looking at in the area directly surrounding the property of interest to you? Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, I listened to a different episode. I think I remember you help people find real estate. And then not only that, but if you find a deal and you give it to them, you even give them the option where you will manage for them, right? I have done that in the past. Yes. Yeah. That's awesome. I don't think people understand until you actually do property management, like you do and like I do. I don't think people really understand what an opportunity you're giving other people to, because it's way harder than people think. (laughs) Right. Yeah, totally. uh, But that's a different subject. So to answer your question, yeah, I look at three different things. We'll keep it at three, but essentially I don't care what my land or my building looks like. In fact, I'm actually hoping it looks pretty awful. I'm hoping I have the worst looking building or land. Because that's the building and the land that you have the control over and you have the ability to improve it. That's exactly right. So first thing I'm paying attention to is everything around me that I don't own. That's what everybody should be paying attention to. But who cares about the cars in your parking lot, which is a good indication of your tenants that you have. That's important to look at. I care more about the cars on the other parking lots and what they look at. Then I'll look at population growth and then I'll look at jobs growth. And what that looks like as well, too. So those are primarily the three biggest things. And I'll even throw in a fourth is sometimes you can kind of feel where something is shifting or moving, which also could really help you if you time it right, too. Because I feel like this building that I'm referencing, we did everything we possibly could. But even when I looked at the population and the jobs and what was happening in this area, our just tenants were never going to be the kind of tenants that were going to be easy to manage. And everything around them indicated that. I thought if I operate this building really, really well, if I manage it really, really well, I'll turn this thing around. And what's particularly hard, you probably know this, is sometimes those are like the best deals, right? (laughs) This guy's like, yeah, I'll seller finance this thing for you. I do a lot of seller financing, helps getting into deals, right? So I'll finance 20%. So I got in this deal with no money down, (laughs) but I found out why. And then I will say I did buy a year and a half ago, a 122 unit apartment community that was just awful. The day before closing, there's a shooting, bullet holes in the signing. But this thing was on five and a half acres surrounded by trees. All around on the other side of those trees was great homes. So this is what you're looking for, guys. This was a terrible area only because of the 122 apartments on the five and a half acres. 
Now that's what you want. That's a situation that you want to be able to take over and get into. By the way, that's a fun story too. I took that over 30 vacancies. There literally people were just, yeah, it was crazy. Yeah, I wish you had time to get into that story now. Hopefully we'll have the opportunity to do it on a future episode, Logan. Are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Sure, man. Let's do it. Awesome. What is the best ever book you've recently read? Just read Principles for Dealing with the Changing World Order by Ray Dalio. His first book was Principles on Life and Work or something like that, which is pretty good too. Yeah, Ray Dalio's got some great books. What is your best ever way to give back? I got a book coming out. My first book, I just wrapped it up and it's on Find Your Financial Freedom. So I'm really excited. And for everybody listening, I'm going to give the link here and they'll put it in the show notes. But if you use the link on the week of May 10th, you can get the book for 99 cents. And I kind of shared my story. I grew up not knowing anything about financial literacy. So the way I'm trying to give back now is this book for one. And my wife and I are actually working on a foundation as well. And all of it's predicated on financial literacy. I don't think there's enough of it in society. I don't think there's enough of it in school. I don't think people are talking about what they need to talk about. And I think my book does a really good job helping people take actionable steps to scale towards financial freedom. And hopefully from this podcast, you know that I believe you can do that with speed. A lot of this book talks about exactly that. So I'll definitely put the link in there and check it out. Excellent. Logan, what is your best ever advice? I think my best ever advice would be to question everything, question it fast is it's crazy the kind of stuff, I'm not just talking about in the media, just everything that you've learned. It could be even from family, friends, school. I wish I would have questioned things a little bit sooner. And obviously I'm talking mostly from financial literacy, but I just think there's a lot out there and I think you should question it. Make sure you truly understand it. There's a lot of things in life you don't want to outsource. And if you question those things, you don't have to outsource it. And that would be my best ever advice. And Logan, where can people get in touch with you? You can email me at logan at loganrankin.com. Go to my website, loganrankin.com as well. And you can see all my social media stuff. If you have any questions, hit me up on there. Great. And those links are included in the show notes. Logan, thank you. Best ever listeners. Thank you as well. I know I've gotten a lot of value from this conversation. If you've gotten value from it as well, please subscribe to our show. Leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend who we can add value to as well. Thank you and have a best ever day.